Good morning, Reconcile. Um, happy Easter. I'm excited to uh, share with you God's Word today. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 26. So Luke 23, starting in verse 26. Now, I have a question for you. Have you ever been angry with someone, but then understood the situation better and your emotion towards them changed. I don't know if you have that. I, I, I've been angry at someone, then understood their situation. You know, maybe they had some uh, uh, increased suffering or frustration that day happened to them. And once I were to understand what happened to them, it kind of softened my emotion. Yeah? And so the, the information about a situation helps us to interpret the situation and have the proper emotional response. Oftentimes, our initial emotional response is not correct because we don't have all of the information. Now, here's the thing I want to do today. I want to look at the death and resurrection of Jesus with the intention of understanding exactly what happened and how we then in turn, should respond to that. So Luke 23, verse 26, it reads, As they led him away, they seized Simon, a Cyrenian who was coming in from the country, and laid the cross on him to carry behind Jesus. A large crowd of people followed him, including women who were mourning and lamenting. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Look, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the women without children, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things while the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other criminals were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals. One on the right, one on the left. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us um, eyes of faith, eyes open by the Holy Spirit, that we might understand the significance of your death and resurrection. Lord God, God, help us to, to understand it at a heart level, Lord God, and, and intellectually understand it so that our response would be appropriate. Show us your grace and your mercy by the power of the Spirit. Now, you might be thinking... You know, that's an interesting passage to choose for Easter. And I kind of want to tell you uh, how I came to this. Um, like many of you, uh, I was scrolling on social media. I was actually scrolling on Twitter. I don't know. I was just, it was, I was trying to go to bed and my mom was kind of wondering. And I was like, oh, let me just spend some time kind of mindless reading something as that happens sometimes. And, you know, it's around, it's Easter week and <clears throat> I saw a picture of um, Jesus with his cross walking towards the place of his crucifixion. 
And this doesn't normally happen to me, but that picture, it stuck out to me. This, this, this mental picture of Jesus exhausted, weary, carrying the cross to the place where he would die. It shook me and stuck with me. I, I thought about how Jesus is intimately aware of what suffering feels like. He understands long, drawn-out suffering, not simply short ones. And, you know, to varying degrees, we are collectively experiencing suffering, that it's not uh, a momentary suffering, but it seems that it's long and drawn out. I don't know, you know, there's some, uh, there's some times where you can take a walk and it's just a, a nice and an easy walk, but there are times, I don't know if you're a runner, if you run or you jog, and that last half mile feels extraordinarily longer because you feel the exhaustion of the previous running. And so I think about Jesus, how he's not only carrying the cross out of the blue or or even out of this place of rest, but he had already been through so much suffering at that time, and all he was looking forward to was the suffering on the cross. And I imagine that each step that he took was weighty because he felt the weight of the previous suffering, the suffering that he felt in the moment, and the suffering that he he knew that he was going to feel. You know, the, the, the scriptures say that Jesus, he is, he is our, our high priest. He is the one who connects us to God, but, but he is a high priest who sympathizes with us because he is intimately acquainted with suffering. Our Jesus knows suffering intimately. Now, just to, to give you the picture of the sufferings that he went through before he even got to this point, I just want to, to point some scriptures out that, that are leading up to the one we're at. You know, his night of suffering, it started with a prayer in the garden. In Luke twenty two forty four, 44, it says, Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently And his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. That in the garden of Gethsemane, knowing the suffering that he was about to endure, not simply the physical suffering, but the suffering for our sin. He said, Father, if there is any way, take this cup away from me. If this can pass, if there's another way, let it be. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. His prayer was not a patty cake prayer. It was a prayer that, that shook him deeply in his emotions because he had a sober-minded understanding of what he would encounter. Not, not only was, was he in anguish, but when he got up from prayer, his disciple, a supposed friend, Judas, came with the people who would take him to trial. And, 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 and it says, Judas betrayed him with a kiss. So you have the emotional distress of the garden prayer, the distress of knowing someone who was supposed to be your close friend betraying you. And not only this, in chapter 22, verse 61, it records how Peter denied him. Peter, the one who said, I will never deny you. I will follow you. I will will do whatever you say. In verse 61, it says, then the Lord 
turned and looked at Peter. This is the moment of Peter's betrayal when he says, I swear I don't know that man. So Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. I can't imagine. He's, Jesus is at this essentially illegal mock trial, and he can see one of his best friends across the way swearing that he does not know him. Not only that, before he even gets to a trial, he is beaten. And in verse 63 of chapter 22, it says, The men who were holding Jesus started mocking him and beating him. After blindfolding him, they kept asking, prophesy, who told us? Who was it that hit you? Who was it that hit you? So he's dealing with this emotional pain that he knows he's about to face increasing suffering. He's been betrayed by one of his closest friends. He has one friend swearing that he never knew him. And then they have blindfolded him and he's getting heat, hit and beat. And they're saying, prophesy, who hit you if you were such a great, great prophet? That is the night, that Friday night. Not only this, at sunrise, he was taken to a Jewish trial. So as it says, when daylight came, the elders of the people, both the chiefs, priests, and the scribes, covenanted and brought him before the Sanhedrin. So, so he's been betrayed. He's been beaten throughout the night, and he stands up and he goes, to a trial. Not only does he stand at this trial, after this, after this trial with the Jewish people, he goes to another trial. In chapter 23, verses 1, it says, Then the whole assembly rose up and brought him before Pilate. Then they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, the king. They're slandering him, trying to get him killed at the Roman court. Not only this, he's been to one trial, then you got the second trial in front of Pilate, and then he's sent to another local leader named Herod. So he has this next trial, and then at that trial it says, Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt, mocked him, dressed him in bright clothing, and sent him back to Pilate. Not only that, when, Pilate, when he came back to Pilate, Pilate put him and a murderer named Barabbas before the people and said, hey, I'll free either one of these men. And I can imagine Jesus already having been suffering emotionally, mentally, physically. He's thinking, you know, he's the, he's the innocent one. And there's this obvious guilty one. And they said, now we want the guilty murderer. After all of this, after the beatings that he endured at the hands of the Romans next, after all of this, he had to carry a heavy cross to the place of his death. Listen, verse 26 says, As they led him away, they seized Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming in from the country and laid the cross on him to carry behind Jesus. Jesus was so weak that he could not carry the cross by himself. But when you have in view 
what happened in the previous 24 hours, how he was uh, emotionally distraught at the, the thought of the cross, how he was betrayed by all of his friends, how he was beaten unjustly, how he was drugged from trial to trial to trial and had people lie and mock on him, how he, he must have been exhausted in so many ways. And then you can imagine seeing Jesus walking to what he knows is his sure death, physically, emotionally exhausted. Now, what we have here in the verse today, this is the only statement from Jesus that we have as he is carrying the cross. This is the only thing he said as he is walking that road, the place where he'd be crucified. In verse 27, it says, a large crowd of people followed him including women who were mourning and lamenting him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Look, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the women without children, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now, upon reading this verse, and maybe upon hearing it, it's a bit confusing. Out of all the things that Jesus could have said as he's walking to his execution, why did he say this? You know, I think that many of us would have had the reaction of the women who were mourning and lamenting. You know, it's a noble thing to show compassion. If you had even a hint or a glimpse of the sufferings that Jesus had had to endure up until this point and know the sufferings that he would endure at the crucifixion, you would have compassion, this lamenting, this pity. You know, I, I remember when the Passion of the Christ came out, and I remember being in the theater when Jesus is walking. He's depicted walking to the cross. He is weak. He stumbles. He falls. And I could, the, 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 the compassion, the, the mourning, it was, you could almost feel it in that theater. And in his agony, he still stops to teach the people. The first thing he says is, hey, listen, don't worry about me. That's, that sounds outrageous. Why, why would we, why would, if you were there, why would you not worry about him? He is the one in the position of suffering. Yet the rest of what he says, if we're being honest, seems harsh and somewhat confusing. I would present to you today that Jesus wants them and us to know that there, that there is something that is more important than feeling sorry for him. They do not need only to look at his sufferings, but also to God's judgment. As he is walking there, weeping, he says, listen, I'm about to go to suffering, but you need to be aware that you will experience suffering too. What is he talking about? 
A couple of chapters beforehand, Jesus foretold that God would judge Jerusalem and Judea for their rejection of God's commands and the rejection of the Savior. Now, you got to remember, this is centuries that this city and this people had continuously rejected God's law. They had continuously rejected God's Savior. And the rejection of God's law equates to the mistreatment of your neighbor. And God in his mercy consistently uh, stretched out his hand and says, hey, I'm here, repent. I'm here, repent. But when he came in the flesh, when he sent his son, they rejected him. Now, Jesus' prophecy that Jerusalem would face judgment came to pass not too far after that point. In 70 AD, the temple and the city were destroyed. And therein, we can have a glimpse of the panic of judgment. Remember what Jesus said, blessed are those who don't have children during this time. What he's saying is, listen, if you understood the judgment that is to come, you don't want your children around when that judgment is coming. It's horrible. Nobody wants to be in a siege, to be in warfare and also be concerned with their children. This is the suffering that we can see in war-torn countries. He's saying, listen, you need to be concerned because if you don't repent, you will face God's judgment. Not only that, it is so severe that Jesus says, you will cry out to the mountains and the hills to cover you. It is so bad. They said, listen, will, will the mountains just hide me? Will the hills hide me? I want to hide from this trouble and from this wrath. And the moment that he is about to go to the cross, he is saying, listen, you need to understand that the suffering that I am going through is supposed to point you to the suffering that will happen under God's judgment. God's judgment is severe and it is fearful. I know that, that in our hearts we are tempted to, to, to get angry and, and, and scoff at judgment, but judgment is a function of justice. We are a world that is consumed with justice. And when we see wrongdoing, we cry out instinctually, will there be justice? And what we are saying is, will there be punishment for the wrongdoing? <clears throat> Yet God's judgment, God's justice is not only against those who rejected him in Jerusalem, the scriptures teaches that God's judgment is for all who would sin against him. Romans 3.9, it says, what then? Are we better off? Not at all. We have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. It's like saying everybody. Everybody has sinned. Sin is the turning away from God and the turning and in putting ourselves in the place of authority. That we have these clear commands from God. And what sin is, is saying, you know what? I know those commands, but I would rather do what I think is wise in my own estimation. Here's the issue with that. God's authority is good. And if, if, listen, just imagine a world in which people obeyed what God wanted. When Jesus says, hey, I want you to love God, I want you to love others. But we know that this is not the world we live in, and we know that it's not only 
other people's fault, we know that we ourselves contribute to this world that is rebelling against God's good commands. We intuitively know that wrongs, the wrongs that we commit, spill over unto others, which points to the goodness of God's commands. We are this interconnected community so that when I don't respond and act in love and faithfulness to God and love to my neighbor, that it does not only affect me. And the point is this, God's justice, God's justice demands that our disobedience be addressed. So Jesus is careful to point out that sadness or pity about what happened to to him, about the suffering that he experienced, is not the same as understanding that Jesus is facing judgment for our sins. Listen, it's Jesus is not simply wanting you to feel bad about his sufferings. He is wanting you to understand what his sufferings are about. And beloved, his suffering is not because of him. His suffering is because of you. This is a harsh thing that Jesus says, but is it not a loving thing to point to the truth? Jesus points to the fact that if he, being innocent, would face judgment, what would those who are guilty expect to face? That's that, that weird uh, uh, saying in verse 31. It says, for they do these things when the wood is green. What will happen when it is dry? Like when you're building a fire, you don't get like the freshly cut wood. You, you dry it out. And that, that dried wood is what you use for the fire. He's saying, I, my nature is not, is not thus made to, to, to receive this judgment. I, th- that is not the proper place because I am innocent. But you, on the other hand, your nature demonstrates that you deserve this judgment. And if I am going to face judgment, what about you? Jesus is encouraging them to be clear-eyed about their own state. So, So we cannot rightly relate to the suffering of Jesus without at the same time seeing our own guilt. So when we think about our suffering Savior, it should not only bring about a compassion for him, it should actually be a sober sorrow for our own sin because his suffering demonstrates what we deserve. This is further shown in in how he reacts to the thieves on the cross. You know, the story is that that once he is crucified, he has a thief on his right and and the thief on the left. And one of the thieves says, hey, Jesus, I I heard that you had some power. Can you just like get off of this cross and destroy everybody so we can go free? But the other thief, in verse 41, the other thief says, we are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we have done. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when I come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. 
So the difference between this man on the cross who was guilty, the difference between him and those who were mourning is that he understood this dual truth, that Jesus is innocent and he was guilty. That is is what the cross is showing us. And this truth is the gate of heaven and the road to peace. So as we consider on this Easter, the death of Jesus, we need to remember what his suffering and his death is pointing to. Beloved, it's it's not only to, to stir Uh, feelings of sorrow, it's to stir the truth about our guilt and our complicity and the evil that exists in this world. So what is our response? What is our response? The remembrance of the cross is the time to consider our own guilt because this was the intent Jesus did not go to the cross for our sympathy. He got on the cross for our forgiveness. The remembrance of the cross is to the time to remember that the cross is about Christ in our place for our sins. Beloved, he got what we deserved. Now, the beautiful thing is we know how this ends. That on Easter, we don't simply say that he died. We say he is risen. One of the ways that the New Testament talks about the resurrection is that the resurrection is God's declaration that Jesus was and is innocent. You know, if you were the leaders at the time of his crucifixion and you saw him die, you could have thought, oh, man, I guess we were right. But God wanted to make sure that the whole world would know that Jesus did not suffer because of his own mistakes, because he has none. He didn't suffer because of his own sin, because he committed none. He suffered for our sin. But 1 Peter 1, it says, through him, Jesus, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead, and listen to this, and gave him glory. The resurrection this morning where we remember that Christ did not stay in the grave, but he got up is a declaration that Jesus is innocent. It also is the declaration that Jesus is worthy of all honor and all praise. Beloved, the beauty of the resurrection is is that Jesus is declared innocent. He is risen with glory. And if we believe in him, we get the benefits of his resurrection. Listen, we can have the declaration of his innocence applied to us if we would confess our guilt and repentance. This is good news. Romans 4, 25, it says, he was delivered up for our trespasses. So he died for our sins. But listen, he was raised for our justification. This justification is a declaration of, of righteousness. 
So when God raised Jesus from the dead, it was a declaration to all creation that Jesus is glorious and that Jesus is righteous. And if we trust in him, that declaration of righteousness gets applied to us. This is the great exchange. That if we would own our guilt, Jesus would own our guilt. And let us share in his justification. Let us share, beloved, in his innocence. This great exchange is the heart of the gospel and a reason for celebration on this Easter. So we need to remember and understand rightly the story of the cross and the story of the resurrection is not just a story that can make us sad when we think about the cross and, and maybe be happy because we think about resurrection. The story is the story that we actually are joined to if we would believe in Jesus. The story is, is that I have guilt and I have shame because of my wrongdoing and that God loved me enough that he would send Jesus to not only have pity on me, but to take my guilt and my shame and his sufferings on the cross. And then, beloved, he is risen from the dead, declared innocent, righteous, worthy of all glory. And he says, hey, listen, you who have sinned, if you would trust in me, I will share my righteousness and my innocence with you. And that is our access to God. He has made the path clear. God's justice is satisfied. And now if we will believe in him, all we hear is, is a, a, a beckon and a call to come to him and receive this good news. Easter joy is not simply the joy of Jesus' resurrection. It is the joy of our own resurrection. It's not just the story of his victory. It's the story of our victory. So I would say if, if you today, if you say, I, I don't know if I would, if I believe in Jesus, I don't know where I stand with him. I would say to you, look at the cross and have the right assessment. It is not simply a sad event, but it actually is an indictment. It actually is an accusal of you, of your sin. Yet at the very same time, it is an invitation. For when God reveals to you the sinfulness of your sin, he at the same time invites you to the forgiveness of sins in Christ. And to the church, to the believers, Easter is a time of rejoicing. Listen, if we are ever tempted to fear God's judgment or to wonder what is God's disposition to us, we know exactly where to turn. We are forgiven because Jesus died in our place. And beloved, we are justified, declared righteous because of Christ in our place. And if you are the Christian, the banner of Easter, the banner of sins forgiven, righteousness given, that is the banner of not just today, that is the banner of your whole life. That is the declaration that God has for you, that your sins are forgiven, 
that the righteousness of Jesus is yours. That access to him is open and free. Now what that does, beloved, is it opens our heart to love others freely. When I know that when I consider God, and when I consider what does he think of me, I remember, well, beloved, he loves us enough that he would send Jesus to die in our place and that we would share in the benefits of his resurrection. That gratitude, that grace overflows into love for others. So this Easter, let's look at the cross, let's look at the resurrection and have a correct biblical understanding of what happened. He died for us and he rose again for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would make our hearts happy this morning. That though we have been reminded of our sin, you did not leave us there. Our sin is not the end of the story, nor is your death on the cross. The end of the story is that you have resurrected. The end of the story is that our sins have been forgiven. So let us live in the light of this story, not simply today, but all of our days. Help our hearts to trust in you and to be glad in you. In Jesus' name, amen.